Welcome back to Seriously Funny. I'm your host, Mashnor Kabir, and I am literate. This week, we will finally be making another book review. One of my favorite books, it fights for the top spot with the last book review, The Fifth Vital by Mike Malak. A quick TLDR on the book, it's about the tools that you can use to be happier as well as what happiness does to you and for you. It is written by a Harvard-studied psychologist and professor, Sean Aker, so it has a lot of papers and actual science. It's not just a hoodoo, voodoo, how-to-be-more-happy-bro book. Uh, with that, let's dive into it. Oh, and if you are watching or listening for the first time, drop me a follow, a review, subscribe, whatever the platform you're on supports, and I yeah, I make content similar to what's covered in this book, uh, so highly appreciated. You've probably heard the question before. Also, there's going to be a lot of reading today. So if I'm, I don't look at the camera at all, that's why I just a lot of reading. This is going to be a really long episode. I wrote a lot here and the book goes over a lot. So just, uh, just a BT dubs on that one. Uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg? This is the first premise that Sean proposes in the book. He writes, quote, if you observe the people around you, you'll find most individuals follow a formula that has been subtly or not so subtly taught to them by their schools, their company, their parents, or society. That is, if you work hard, you will become successful. And once you become successful, then you'll be happy. This pattern of belief explains what most often motivates us in life. We think, if I just get that raise, then I'll be happy. If I just hit that next sales target, I'll be happy. If I can just get that next good grade, I'll be happy. If I lose that five pounds, I'll be happy. And so on. Success first, happiness second. The only problem is that this formula is broken, end quote, page three. He's pointing that although, or he's positing that although we may have been brought up learning that happiness is the result of accomplishing our goals, happiness is actually the first aspect of better, more effectively achieving our goals. In the book, Sean talks a lot about success in the workplace, success in life, success as a human being. And he writes a lot, not only about how to be more positive and how to be more happy, but also how that positivity and happiness contributes to a better life. By the end of the book, he elaborates thoroughly on the quote I just read, describing why the formula is wrong, describing why happiness should come before goals rather than merely being a reward after achieving them. The next important point in the book, one of the greatest things that I got from this book is defining happiness. Quote, you can eliminate depression without making someone happy. You can cure anxiety without teaching someone optimism. You can return someone to work without improving their job performance. If all you strive for is diminishing the bad, you'll only attain the average, and you'll miss out entirely on the opportunity to exceed the average. You can study gravity forever without learning how to fly, end quote. Page 11. This first says that happiness isn't simply the absence of negativity. Happiness is more than that. It's not neutrality. He continues later, quote, the happiness advantage starts at a different place. It asks us to be realistic about the present while maximizing our potential for the future. It is about learning how to cultivate the mindset and behaviors that have been empirically proven to fuel greater success and fulfillment. It is a work ethic. It is a work ethic, end quote. Page 24. 
Sean doesn't describe happiness as an emotion. He describes it as a work ethic, a character trait. As I interpret it, the cool thing about this is that a work ethic or a character trait are things that can be worked for and attained in the long term, rather than an emotion that comes and goes like a sine wave merely following the hedonic treadmill, which he also mentions. Quote, we have far more control over our own emotional well-being than previously believed. While we each have a happiness baseline that we fluctuate around on a daily basis, with concert effort, we can raise that baseline permanently so that even when we are going up and down, we are doing so at a higher level, end quote, page 50. And that's something that I've talked about before as well. He does, however, explain that happiness isn't static. It really depends on the person experiencing it. Quote, that's because there is no single meaning. Happiness is relative to the person experiencing it. This is why scientists often refer to it as, quote, subjective well-being. So why, so how do I, how do scientists define happiness? Essentially, as the experience of positive emotions, pleasure combined with deeper feelings of meaning and purpose. Happiness implies a positive mood in the present and a positive outlook for the future. Martin Seligman, the pioneer in positive psychology, had broken it down into three measurable components, pleasure, engagement, and meaning. His studies have confirmed, though most of us know this intuitively, that people who pursue only pleasure experience only part of the benefits happiness can bring, while those who pursue all three routes lead the fullest lives. Perhaps the most accurate term for happiness then is the one Aristotle used, eudaimonia, which translates not directly into happiness, but to quote, human flourishing, end quote, page 39 to 40. Happiness may be a work ethic or a character trait, but that doesn't mean it looks the same for everyone. There's a subjective component to it, and the book admits that. Sean also harps on the idea that this can be learned, not through generations and hundreds of years of evolution, but within our lifetime. He talks about a study with monkeys where they practice finding pellets. The scientists found that the, quote, amount of cortical area being activated by the task had increased several times over. In other words, through mere practice, each monkey had literally expanded the section of its brain necessary for accomplishing this task, end quote, page 26. He later says that this was over the course of one study rather than many years. He pushes on this point further with a story, quote, Imagine someone we'll call Roger, who could see normally growing up, but then suddenly lost his vision after toxic chemicals were splashed in his eyes during a high school chemistry experiment. After the accident, Roger was forced to learn how to read Braille, which required him to use his primary index finger to feel every word he read. When neuroscientists put someone like Roger in an fMRI machine to scan his brain, they made some startling discoveries. When they poked at his index finger of Roger's non-reading brain, or non-reading hand, nothing out of the ordinary happened. A small part of his brain would simply light up, just like it would if someone tapped on any of our fingers. But then came the extraordinary part. When researchers tapped on Roger's braille reading finger, a relatively enormous area of cortical mass would light up, like a halogen lamp clicking on in his brain, end quote, page 29. Overall, he's harping on the idea that, quote, people can be happier, that pessimists can become optimists, and that stressed and negative brains can be trained to see more possibility, end quote, page 31. The book also talks a lot about the science of happiness and not only defining it, but describing what it does. Sean talks about how he noticed his consulting work that a lot of people are not aware of incredible findings of positive psychology, quote, 
Lawyers who suffer from unbearable stress are unaware that specific techniques have already been developed to buffer them against this occupational hazard. Teachers in the inner city schools don't know about the study that isolated the top two patterns of successful teaching. Fortune 500 companies are still using incentive programs that were proven ineffective almost a generation ago. I'm going to stop reading the page numbers. All of these quotes are going to be available somewhere in the description. So I'm not going to read the page numbers. The page numbers will be on those quotes. He goes on to explain some of these benefits, which we'll talk more about later. Oh, and a lot of science, a lot of science. I, I know I don't have all the sources as nicely cited as I usually do, but I do have a page with all of the quotes I'm reading to you. And I have transcribed the sourcing from the book under their like the respective quotes if you're wondering why some of them don't have a site under it uh, it's because the book didn't give one uh, the page of quotes and notes can be found uh, quotes and notes can be found in the description below though i would still highly recommend picking up and reading this book yourself it is an incredibly valuable and very well written and connected very well a lot better than a bunch of floating quotes in a notion page uh, there's a lot of great stories narratives that i'm not going to give here because I, I still want you to go buy the book uh, but the other thing that the book talks about near the beginning is something that's important to mention. Quote, depression rates today are 10 times higher than they were in 1960, 50 years ago. The mean onset age of depression was 29.5 years old. Today, it's almost exactly half that, 14.5 years old, end quote. And quote, what was going on here that was like so many people in contemporary society along the way to gaining superb educations and their shiny opportunities, they had absorbed the wrong lessons. They had mastered formulas in calculus and chemistry. They had read great books and learned world history and become fluent, foreign ling fluent in foreign languages, but they had never formally been taught how to maximize their brain's potential or how to find meaning and happiness. Armed with iPhones and personal digital assistants, they had multitasked their way through a storm of resume-building experience, often at the expense of actual ones. In their pursuit of high achievement, they had isolated themselves from their peers and loved ones and thus compromised the very support systems they so ardently needed. Repeatedly, I noticed these patterns in my own students who often broke down under the tyranny of expectations we place on ourselves and those around us, end quote. The world is getting more sad, and society is built around pessimism, built around problem-solving rather than innovation, built around negativity rather than positivity, quote. Turn on the news, and the majority of airtime is spent on accidents, corruptions, murders, abuse. This focus on the negative tricks our brains into believing that this sorry ratio is reality, that most of life is negative, end quote. This kind of sucks. So hopefully, if you're listening to this, either A, you pick up the book, I highly recommend it, or B, you pick up these lessons and apply them to your life. Let's work together to make this downward trend in mental health go upward, and that starts with a good, hard look without judgment, and then moving forward, or a hard look at our lives without judgment, and then moving forward. Now we'll go over what happiness does for you. A lot of the book focuses on what happiness does for you in your life, specifically at work. Uh, there's a chapter titled The Happiness Advantage at Work even, so let's start there. The Happiness Advantage at Work. Page 15. Oh, and uh, the page numbers next to all of the quotes, different books are different sometimes, depending on where it's getting printed, published. If you buy this book, there's a non-zero chance that the quotes will be one or two pages off from the pages that I have listed in the description and that 
I may or may not say. Page 15 talks about some basic statistics. Doctors put in a positive mood before a diagnosis show nearly three times more intelligence and creativity than doctors in a neutral state, as well as making a more accurate diagnosis 19% faster. Optimistic salespeople outsell their pessimistic counterparts by 56%. Students primed to feel happy before they take math tests far outperform neutral peers. Quote, it turns out that our brains are literally hardwired to perform their best, when they're not, when they are negative, when they, not when they are negative or even neutral, but when they are positive, end quote. I really scuffed that one. Uh, We then learn that happy workers have higher productivity, better sales, perform better in leadership positions, and have higher performance ratings and pay. They also have better job security, are less likely to take sick days, less likely to quit, and less likely to become burned out. Happy CEOs are better at garnering happier and healthier employees, as well as giving them a better work environment, quote, conductive to high performance, end quote. He goes on to describe a study of 272 employees that found that employees who were initially happier got better evaluations and pay. Then another study on college freshmen found that happiness predicted income levels 19 years later, regardless of initial wealth. We also know that happier people are healthier. For this, I'll give two studies described in the book. Quote, Happiness can improve our physical health, which in turn keeps us working faster and longer and therefore makes us more likely to succeed. This revelation provides companies an additional incentive to care about employee happiness since healthy employees will be more productive on the job. Research shows that unhappy employees take more sick days, staying home an average of 1.25 more days per month or 15 extra sick days a year. And again, studies have determined that happiness functions as the cause, not just the result of good health. In one study I'm glad I never volunteered to take part in, researchers gave subjects a survey designed to measure levels of happiness, then injected them with a strain of the cold virus. A week later, the individuals who were happier before the start of the study had fought off the virus much better than less happy individuals. They didn't just feel better either. They actually had fewer objective symptoms of illness as measured by doctors. Less sneezing, coughing, inflammation, and congestion, end quote. And also, quote, One of the most famous longitudinal studies on happiness comes from an unlikely place, the old diaries of Catholic nuns. These 180 nuns from the school sisters of Notre Dame, all born before 1917, were asked to write down their thoughts in autobiographical autobiographical journal entries. More than five decades later, a clever group of researchers decided to code the entries for positive emotional content. Could their level of positivity as 20-year-olds predict how the rest of their lives turned out? In fact, yes. The nuns whose journal entries had more overly joyful content lived nearly 10 years longer than the nuns whose entries were more negative or neutral. By age 85, 90% of the happiest quartile of nuns were still alive, compared to only 34% of the least happy quartile. Clearly, the nuns who were happy at 20 didn't feel that way because they knew they would go on to live longer. Their superior health and longer lifespans could only be a result of their happiness, not the cause. So why happy? Sean explains why scientists believe that pessimism and optimism do what they do, and it comes from evolution. We know that negative emotions narrow our thoughts, range of action, and even our field of view. This is This was probably helpful, quote, in prehistoric times, if a saber-toothed tiger was running at you, fear and stress helped release chemicals that either prepared you to fight the tiger, 
parentheses, which admittedly might not go very well, and parentheses, or flee from him, parentheses, a contest you again might lose, and parentheses. Still, these were both better options than doing nothing and simply waiting to be attacked. So what evolutionary purpose would positive emotions have? End quote. Then we ask about the benefits of happiness. Why did happiness provide enough of a benefit for Mother Nature to keep it around? Sean writes, quote, Extensive research has found that happiness actually has a very important evolutionary purpose, something Barbara Fredrickson has termed, quote, the broaden and build theory, end quote. Instead of narrowing our actions down to fight or flight as negative emotions do, positive ones broaden the amount of possibilities we process, making us more thoughtful, creative, and open to new ideas. For instance, individuals who are, quote, primed, end quote, meaning scientists help evoke a certain mindset or emotion before doing an experiment to feel either amusement or contentment can think of a larger and wider array of thoughts and ideas than individuals who have been primed to feel either anxiety or anger. Happiness gives us a real chemical edge on the competition. How? Positive emotions flood our brains with dopamine and serotonin. Chemicals that not only make us feel good, but dial up the learning centers of our brains to higher levels. They help us organize new information, keep that information in the brain longer, and retrieve it faster later on. And they enable us to make and sustain more neural connections, which allows us to think more quickly and creatively, become more skilled at complex analysis and problem solving, and see and invent new ways of doing things. We even quite literally see more of what's around us when we're feeling happy. A recent University of Toronto study found that our mood can actually change how our visual cortex, the part of the brain responsible for sight, processes information, end quote. He later elaborates, quote, In other words, a quick burst of positive emotions doesn't just broaden our cognitive capacity. It also provides a quick and powerful antidote to stress and anxiety, which in turn improves our focus and our ability to function at our best level. Happiness plays an important role in the high-functioning society we live in today, where flexibility, creativity, and ingenuity is prized a lot more than what pessimism and negativity used to provide primitive humans. We are past a time of roaming tigers and T-Rexes. Now we work to build cities and conquer the galaxy. Pessimism serves to inhibit these modern goals while optimism serves to further them. And luckily, as we mentioned earlier, we can change ourselves and our perspective now. We don't need to wait for Mother Nature. And no, I'm not talking about eugenics. Although, maybe that'll be an option. Maybe one day we'll find the misery gene and we'll just take it out of people because, of course, that's how easy it is. Sean does, at the beginning of the book, give a few pieces of advice for being happier before getting into what he calls the seven principles. This is actually the first principle. This is the first principle, the happiness advantage, the title of the book. And so these are going to be things that you've heard from this podcast before. And the first one, I am not making this up, is meditation. You've heard me talk about this in every episode, and here it is again, quote, Neuroscientists have found that monks who spend years meditating actually grow their left prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain most responsible for feeling happy. Studies show that in minutes right after meditating, we experience feelings of calm and contentment, as well as heightened awareness and empathy. And research even shows that regular meditation can permanently rewire the brain to raise levels of happiness, lower stress, and even improve immune function. Meditation changes your brain, literally making you more primed for positivity. The second tip is to find something to look forward to. Quote, 
One study found that people who just thought about watching their favorite movie actually raised their endorphin levels by 27%. Often, the most enjoyable part of an activity is the anticipation. If you can't take the time for a vacation right now or even a night out with friends, put something on the calendar, even if it's a month or year down the road. Then, whenever you need a boost of happiness, remind yourself about it. Anticipating future rewards will actually light up the pleasure centers in our brain as much as the actual reward will, end quote. For me, I took, I look forward to recording and editing this podcast every week from eight in the morning to six in the afternoon. Always a great time, especially this episode, which will probably be like four effing hours and I'm just going to love editing this one. Next is commit conscious acts of happiness. Quote, a long line of empirical research, including one study of over 2,000 people, has shown that acts of altruism, giving to friends and strangers alike, decrease stress and strongly contribute to enhanced mental health. Sanja Lium... Limbormishki, a leading researcher and author of The How of Happiness, has found that individuals told to complete, complete five acts of kindness over the course of a day report feeling much happier than control groups and that the feeling lasts for many con- subsequent days, far after the exercise is over. To try this yourself, pick one day a week and make a point of committing five acts of kindness. But if you want to recap the psychological benefit, make sure you do these things deliberately and consciously. You can't just look back over the last 35 hours and declare your acts post hoc. Oh yeah, I held the door for the guy coming out of the bank. Yeah, that was nice. And they need not be grand gestures either. One of my favorite acts is paying the toll of someone behind me on the mass pike. Being able to counter the negative effects of traffic and do stress is $2 well spent in my book, end quote. I want to summarize these things, but honestly, they're explained so well in the book, so I'm just using the quotes. But I do omit a fair amount of stuff. A lot of these quotes, like I, I'm slicing and dicing together. So if I can tell you to go buy the book, please go buy the book. It's really good. Next, infuse positivity into your surroundings. Quote, our physical environment can have an enormous impact on our mindset and sense of well-being. While we may not always have complete control over our surroundings, we can make specific efforts to infuse them with positivity. Making time to go outside on a nice day also delivers a huge advantage. One study found that spending 20 minutes outside in good weather not only boosted positive mood, but broadened, broadened thinking and improved working memory. Studies have shown that the less negative TV we watch, specifically violent media, the happier we are. This doesn't mean shutting ourselves off from the world or ignoring problems. Psychologists have found that people who watch less TV are actually more accurate judges of life's risks and rewards than those who subject themselves to the tales of crime, tragedy, and death that appear night after night on the 10 o'clock news. That's because these people are less likely to see sensationalized or one-sided sources of information and thus see reality more clearly, end quote. The next one you've heard from me a few weeks back in, uh, quote, the five habits for a better life. If you haven't listened to that one, you should, you should go do that. But the next one is exercise. You already learned from me that exercise improves your productivity, reduces stress and anxiety, while also making you feel better and helping your sleep. And that's what I taught you. Uh, but the book also mentions that exercise can help you get into flow state, as well as improving meta- motivation and feelings of mastery, which I'm not exactly sure what feelings of mastery means, probably confidence in your capabilities, but it's probably something good. Uh, for a quote here, quote, 
One study proved just how powerful exercise can be. Three groups of press patients were assigned to different coping strategies. One group took antidepressant medication. One group exercised for 45 minutes three times a week. And one group did a combination of both. After four months, all three groups experienced similar improvements in happiness. The very fact that exercise proved just as helpful as antidepressants is remarkable. But the story doesn't end here. The groups were then tested six months later to assess their relapse rate. Of those who had taken the medication alone, 38% slipped back into their depression, which honestly, that's a really good number. Just to to say something about antidepressants really quickly, 38% relapsed, that's that's considerably less than half. So if you're, you know, talk to your dog, if you are depressed, if antidepressants are something you've thought about, no, they're not just some evil drug that's going to take away your personality. It could, it might, it's very possible, right? But that's why we talk to our psychiatrists, learn the risks and benefits. And also if something does happen, if you're a creative type and antidepressants do harm your creativity or your art, then you stop taking them and you figure out a different path, but it might not always be a bad thing to try. Let's not always demonize antidepressants. Maybe one day we'll talk about that in more depth, but for now, just briefly saying here, antidepressants aren't completely evil. They might not, they are definitely not for everyone, but for some people it may work. And if that's a case you're in, anxiety, depression, it might be something that you should look into. Back to it, uh, 38% had slipped back into depression. Those in the combination group were doing slightly better with a 31% relapse rate. The biggest shock, though, came from the exercise group. Their relapse rate was only 9%. In short, physical activity is not just an incredibly powerful mood lifter, but a long-lasting one. Walk, bike, run, play, stretch, jump rope, pogo stick, it doesn't matter as long as you get moving. Next is a tip that is probably hard for people to follow. Spend money, but not on stuff. Uh, Quote, contrary to the popular saying, money can buy happiness, but only if used to do things as opposed to simply have things. In his book, Luxury Fever, Robert Frank explains while positive feelings we get from material objects are frustratingly fleeting, spending money on experiences, especially ones with other people, produces positive emotions that are both more meaningful and more lasting. For instance, when researchers interviewed more than 150 people about their recent purchases, they found that money spent on activities such as concerts and group dinners out brought far more pleasure than material purchases like shoes, televisions, or expensive watches. Spending money on other people, called, quote, pro-social spending, end quote, also boosts happiness. In one experiment, 46 students were given $20 to spend. The ones who were told to spend the money on others, for instance, by treating a friend to lunch, buying a toy for a younger sister, or donating to charity, were happier at the end of the day than the ones who had been instructed to spend the money on themselves. What are your own spending habits? Draw two columns on a piece of paper or take the take the minutes at work to create a nifty spreadsheet and track your purchases over the next month. Are you spending more on things or on experiences? And at the end of the month, look back over each column and think about the pleasure each purchase brought you and for how long. You may quickly find yourself wanting to reapportion the money from your having column to your doing column. End quote. Spending money is something that I, I don't enjoy doing, but I am more okay with spending money on other people, but I don't think that's a common thing. I think most people like to keep their money to themselves and spending it on other people is hard. For me, spending money in general is hard. 
but similar to the conscious altruism, there's no shame in feeling good when you help someone. Buying your loved ones a gift or simply covering a trip to McDonald's, it's, it'll do you well. Uh, finally, exercise a signature strength. Quote, everyone is good at something. Perhaps you give excellent advice, or you're great with little kids, or you whip up a mean batch of blueberry pancakes. Each time we use a skill, whatever it is, we experience a burst of positivity. If you find yourself in need of a happiness booster, revisit a talent you haven't used in a while. Even more fulfilling than using a skill, though, is exercising strength of character, a trait that is deeply embedded in who we are. A team of psychologists recently cataloged the 24 cross-cultural character strengths that most contribute to human flourishing. They then developed a comprehensive survey that identifies an individual's top five or quote signature end quote strengths. Parentheses, to learn what's in your own top five, go to www.viasurvey.org and take the survey for free. End parentheses. When 577 volunteers were encouraged to pick one of their signature strengths and use it in a new way, uh, each day for a week, they became significantly happier and less depressed than the control groups. And these benefits lasted. Even after the experiment was over, their levels of happiness remained heightened a full six months later. Studies have shown the more you use your signature strengths in daily life, the happier you become. One of mine is, quote, the love of learning, end quote. And I feel noticeably depleted on days I don't have an opportunity to use this strength. So I find ways to incorporate learning into some of my boring daily tasks. For instance, I travel nearly 300 days a year for my work, and the continuous stream of airports and hotels can weigh on my mental health. I'd love to visit a museum in each city, but unfortunately, I can't often spare the time. So I decided that for each new place I visit, I would learn one historical fact. Even this small cognitive exercise makes an enormous difference in my mindset as I wing my way across the continents. So take the survey to find out your own signature strengths, then try to incorporate at least one of them into your life each day, end quote. This one is interesting, but I can say that being good at things makes me feel pretty good. I'm a gamer, so I mostly try to exercise this in games, but since switching to mouse and keyboard, I am not as good as I used to be on Apex Legends, and it definitely hurts sometimes. I tried to play yesterday. I think I'm hard stuck bronze. Overall, these few tips will help you feel better and make your life and goals that much easier to navigate. This will help you increase your own well-being and success as well as those around you. But the bulk of the book is the seven principles. The first principle is actually the happiness advantage, and it's the one that we just covered. So... The six remaining principles. Of those six remaining, the first one is the fulcrum and the lever. This principle talks about how you can change your performance, change your life, change your experience of the world by changing your mindset. Reality is a perception of the mind. You've heard me say that before, and this chapter, as well as the following ones, expand on this idea. This chapter gives some the same general advice I've talked about from The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F by Mark Manson, where he talks about how you have a limited number of Fs to give, and if you give too many, you'll spread yourself too thin. Sean puts it in a less uncouth way. Quote, Our brains are like single processors capable of devoting only a finite amount of resources to experiencing the world. Because our brain's resources are limited, we are left with a choice to use those finite resources to see only pain, negativity, stress, and uncertainty, or to use those resources to look at things through a lens of gratitude, hope, resilience, optimism, and meaning. 
In other words, while we of course can't change reality through sheer force of will alone, we can use our brain to change how we process the world. And that in turn changes how we react to it. Happiness is not about lying to ourselves or turning a blind eye to the negative, but just about adjusting our brain so that we see the ways to rise above our circumstances, end quote. In this chapter, the book talks a good bit about the placebo effect, which I have no idea why I haven't done a full episode on. But in the book, Sean writes, quote, Countless studies have shown that when patients are given a sugar pill and told that it will help alleviate some symptom, it often does so, sometimes as effectively as the actual drug, end quote. And this is from page 69. I just thought I'd mention that. He furthers this by saying that indeed, an empirical review of placebo studies found that, quote, placebos are about 55% to 60% as effective as most active medications like aspirin and codeine for controlling pain. This simple change in mindset, i.e. a belief that they are taking an actual drug, is powerful enough to make the objective symptom actually disappear. Again, page 69, end quote. And there's two experiments that he points out in this chapter. The first one involves a group of 75-year-olds who were sent to a retreat for a week where they pretended that they were in their mid-50s. They pretended that the year was 1959. Furthermore, quote, to reinforce the scenario, they were supposed to dress and act as they did at the time. They were given ID badges with pictures of themselves in their mid-50s. Over the course of the week, they were instructed to talk about President Eisenhower and other events in their lives that happened at the time. Some took to referring to their old jobs in present tense as if they had never retired. Life and Saturday evening post-issues from 1959 were displayed on the coffee tables. In short, everything was designed to make them see the world through the lens of being 55. Langer had other words for it, but essentially she was arguing that by moving the fulcrum and lever of the se- these 75-year-old men, she could change the, quote, objective, end quote, reality of their age. And that is exactly what happened. Before the retreat, the men were tested on every aspect we assume deteriorates with age. Physical strength, posture, perception, cognition, and short-term memory. After the retreat, most of the men had improved in every category. They were significantly more flexible, had better posture, and even much improved hand strength. Their average eyesight even improved by almost 10%, as did their performance on tests of memory. And over half the men intelligence, long thought to be fixed from adolescence, moved up as well. Even their physical appearance changed. Random people who didn't know anything and asked to guess, random people who didn't know anything about the experiment were shown pictures of the men both before and after the experiment and asked to guess their age. Based on these objective ratings, the men looked on average three years younger than when they had arrived. End quote. The other notable experiment was one where, quote, Japanese researchers blindfolded a group of students and told them their right arms were being rubbed with a poison ivy plant. Afterward, all 13 of the students' arms reacted with the classic classic symptoms of poison ivy, itching, boils, and redness. Not surprising until you find out that the plant used for the study wasn't poison ivy at all. It was just a harmless shrub. The students' belief were actually strong enough to create the biological effects of poison ivy, even though no such plant had touched them. Then, on the student's other arm, the researchers rubbed actual poison ivy, but told them it was a harmless plant. Even though all 13 students were highly allergic, only two of them broke out into the poison ivy rash. 
In this chapter, Sean is arguing that your objective experience of reality will change based on your subjective perception of reality. This explains why the health of positive people are better than negative people, why they sell more, why they are, quote, more lucky, end quote. By changing your fulcrum, by changing your perception, you can much easier push the lever, much easier impact your life and your goals, even your health. As he says near the end of the chapter, quote, what we expect from people, parentheses, and from ourselves, and parentheses, manifests itself in the words we use, end quote. The next principle pulls from the beginning of the first quote uh, from the last principle, the part about your brain being a machine that strives for efficiency. This is pushed further in the Tetris effect. The Tetris effect is a psychological phenomenon where when you're focused on something, it begins to show up more in your life. For example, if you want to buy a new car, you're thinking a lot about the car. You'll begin to see it more on the road. Is this because everyone in the world is ganging up to make you feel basic? Yes, absolutely. But the other reason is that you're more focused on it. So you're more primed to notice it. However, as we said near the top, society encourages negative thinking. Quote, think about it. In the work world, as in our personal lives, we are often rewarded for noticing the problems that need solving, the stresses that need managing, and the injustices that need writing. Sometimes this can be very useful. The problem is that if we get stuck in only that pattern, always looking for and picking up on the negative, even paradise can become H-E double hockey sticks. I'm not going to say the word. And worse, the better we get at scanning for the negative, the more we miss out on the positive. Those things in life that get that bring us greater happiness and in turn fuel our success, the good news is that we can also train our brains to scan for the positive, for the possibilities dormant in every situation, and become experts at capitalizing on the happiness advantage. He later furthers this, talking about how our brains are constantly bombarded with stimuli demanding our attention. We can't focus on everything. So the brain has a built-in filter to sift through information like we said a minute ago. This information filtering is demonstrated in a great and admittedly funny experiment where, quote, volunteers watch a video of two basketball teams, one wearing white shirts, the other black ones, who are passing around a basketball. As they watch, the viewers have to count the number of times the white team passes the ball. About 25 seconds into the video, a person in a full-body gorilla costume walks straight through the action, traveling from right to left across the, full sc- across the screen for a full five seconds. As the team member continues to pass the ball, afterward, the viewers are asked to write down the number of passes they counted and then answer a series of additional questions that go something like this. Did you notice anything unusual about the video? Did you see anyone in the video besides the six basketball players? Did you, um, notice the giant gorilla? Unbelievably, when psychologists tried this out on more than 200 people, parentheses back in the days before it became a viral YouTube video that everyone had seen, and parentheses, nearly half of them, 46%, completely missed the gorilla. After the experiment, when the researchers told them about the gorilla, many of them refused to believe they had missed something so obvious and demanded to view the video again. On the second viewing, now that they were looking at for the gorilla, it was, of course, impossible to miss. So why did so many of them fail to see it the first time? Because they were so focused on counting passes. Their neural filters had simply dumped the gorilla sighting right into their spam folder. This experiment highlights what psychologists call, quote, inattentional blindness our frequent inability to see what is often right in front of us if we're not directly focused on it, end quote. 
In this chapter, Sean talks about how we can change what our brain filters and doesn't filter. We can change that filter to look for positivity rather than negativity. Sean writes that, quote, when our brains constantly scan or and focus and or focus on the positive, we profit from three of the most important tools available to us, happiness, gratitude, and optimism. So, How do we become more optimistic and retrain our brain to focus on the positive? Just like it takes practice to master any skill, we need to practice training your brain. And one of the great tools for this method is pretty simple. Quote, It may sound hokey or ridiculously simple, and indeed the activity itself is simple, but over a decade of empirical studies has proven the profound effect it has on the way our brains are wired. When you write down a list of three good things that happened that day, your brain will be forced to scan the last 24 hours for potential positives, things that brought small change or large laughs, feelings of accomplishment at work, a strengthened connection with family, a glimmer of hope for the future, In just five minutes a day, this trains the brain to become more skilled at noticing and focusing on possibilities for personal and professional growth and seizing opportunities to act on them. At the same time, because we can only focus on so much at once, our brains push out those small annoyances and frustrations that used to loom loom large into the background, even out of our visual field entirely. This exercise has staying power. One study found that participants who wrote down three good things each day for a week were happier and less depressed at the one-month, three-month, and six-month follow-ups. More amazing, even after stopping the exercise, they remained significantly happier and showed higher levels of optimism. The better they got at scanning the world for good things to write down, the more good things they saw, without even trying, wherever they looked. The items you write down each day doesn't, don't need to be profound or complicated, only specific. You can mention that delicious takeout Thai food that you had for dinner, your child's bear hug at the end of a long day, or the well-deserved acknowledgement from your boss at work. A variation of the three good things exercises to write a short journal entry about a positive experience. We have long known that venting about hardships and suffering can provide welcome relief, but researchers Chan Burton and Laura King have found that journaling about positive experiences has an equally powerful effect. In one experiment, they instructed people to write about a positive experience for 20 minutes three times a week and then compared them to a control group who wrote about neutral topics. Not only did the first group experience larger spikes in happiness, but three months later, they even had fewer symptoms of illness, end quote. The fourth principle is falling up. He talks about how we simulate different results for the situations and crises that we're faced with. We create these, quote, mental maps, end quote, as he calls them. He writes that in general, there's three paths to these mental maps, quote, One that keeps circling around where you currently are, i.e. the negative event creates no change where you end where you start, end parentheses. Another mental path leads to where, leads you toward further negative consequences, parentheses, i.e. you are far worse off than after the negative event. This path is why we are afraid of conflict and challenge, end parentheses. And one, which I call the third path, that leads us from failure or setback to a place where we are even stronger and more capable than before the fall, end quote. Sean believes that most people today often overlook the third path, even though, quote, study after study shows that if we are able to conceive of a failure as an opportunity for growth, 
we are more likely to experience that growth, end quote. He gives a number of examples to further this idea, quote, bereavement, bone marrow transplantation, breast cancer, chronic illness, heart attack, military combat, natural disaster, physical assert, assault, refugee displacement. If this reads like a random clip from an alphabetized nightmare list at the very worst things that can befall us, that's because it basically is. But also happiness to be a list uh, happens to be a list of events that researchers have found to spur profound positive growth in many, many individuals. Psychologists have termed this experiment adversarial growth or post-traumatic growth, end quote. The book states that the best way to attain this growth is the positive reinterpretation of the situation for the event. This includes optimism and acceptance as well as coping mechanisms that focus on the problem head-on rather than denying or avoiding it. A great quote that Sean writes from his mentor Tal Ben-Shahar is, quote, Things do not necessarily happen for the best, but some people are able to make the best out of things that happen, end quote. He also describes an important thing, which is that, quote, When people feel helpless in one area of life, they not only give up in that one area, they often, quote, overlearn, end quote, the lesson and apply it to other situations. They become convinced that one dead-end path must be proof that all possible paths are dead-ends, end quote. For example, if you're lied to once, now you think that no human being is capable of honesty. Overlearning. This is actually a really interesting concept that I'd like to talk about in depth one day. The book also describes the ABCD model of interpretation for negative experiences. A, adversity. This is the event that can't be changed. It is what it is. B, belief. This is our reaction. Why you believe it happened, what it may mean for you. Is it temporary or is it pervasive? Uh, This one is important as it's what decides the C, consequence. Uh, If we believe that this is temporary, we have a path to go up. If we believe it is forever and we're screwed, uh, then it will lead us down a path of helplessness and inaction. A D is disputation. This is the part where you tell yourself that your belief is a belief, not a fact. And then you challenge that belief. It does also talk about the worst case scenario. Quote, if the adversity truly is bad, it, it, it is, is it as bad as we first thought? This, particularly, this particular method is called decatastrophizing, taking time to show ourselves that while the adversity is real, it is perhaps not as catastrophic as we may have made it out to be, because thousands of years of evolution have made us so remarkably good at adapting to even the most extreme life circumstances, adversity never hits us quite as hard or quite as long as we might think, end quote. This idea of interpretation, believing that we have control, introduces the idea of the locus of control, which is hammered a lot more in our next principle, the Zorro Circle. If you want to know the story behind the name of this principle, read the book. Uh, But the general point of this, since I'm very deep in, is that a lot of the effects of positivity we've mentioned, the quote, gains in productivity, happiness, and health have less to do with how much control we actually have and how much control we think we have. The most successful people in work and in life are those who have what psychologists call and quote, internal locus of control, end quote. The belief that their actions have a direct effect on their outcomes. People with external locuses, on the other hand, are more likely to see daily events as dictated by external forces. 
This is furthered by a study where, quote, researchers found that when they gave a group of nursing home residents more control over simple tasks in their daily lives, like putting them in charge of their own daily lives, like putting them in charge of their own house plans, not only did their levels of happiness improve, but their mortality rate actually dropped in half. It's hard to find a circle of control smaller than caring for a house plant, and yet feeling mastery over even this tiny task actually extended their lives, end quote. For this idea, Sean introduces two characters into the book, the jerk and the thinker. The jerk is the emotional part of the brain, the limbic system, ruled by the amygdala. And the thinker is the logical part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex. The jerk was important back when we were primitive. It kept us cautious and made us react to the tiger tracks in the background. However, in recent times, like we explained earlier, we need to respond more to the thinker, the one that says, quote, think, then react, end quote, rather than simply, quote, react, end quote. And what sucks is that, quote, when we're feeling stressed or out of control, the jerk tends to take over. This isn't something that happens consciously. Instead, it's biological. When we're under pressure, the body starts to build up too much cortisol, the toxic chemical associated with stress. Once the stress has reached a critical point, even the smallest setback can trigger an amygdala response, essentially hitting the brain's panic button. When that happens, the jerk overpowers the thinker's defenses, spurring us into action without conscious thought. Instead of, quote, think, then react, end quote, the jerk responds with, quote, fight or flight, end quote. We have become victims of what scientists call, quote, emotional hijacking, end quote. In order to prevent this, Sean introduces the technique of the Zorro Circle. Whenever you have something distressing, you take a step back, look at whatever it is, a project for example, and instead of trying to take it down the entire boss, break it into much smaller and manageable tasks. This starts with believing that you have control over your situation, which is where the locus of control is involved. If you don't believe that you have control over your situation, you're already screwed. You've lost before you even began fighting. But if you split a large, scary thing into smaller, more manageable things, you'll slowly but surely finish it up with a lot less distress and anxiety. The best analogy I saw in the book was, quote, think of it this way. The best way to wash a car is to put a thumb over the hose's spout so that only a fraction of the area is open. Why? Because this concentrates the water pressure, making the hose much more powerful, end quote. I also liked, and so what that means is focus on one thing rather than just having the hose splurt out water very pathetically. If you cover a lot of it and just focus on one point, one area, then you will have a much more powerful blast. I also liked near the end of the chapter where he wrote, quote, No matter what you may have heard from motivational speakers, coaches, and the like, reaching for the stars is a recipe for failure. In part one, I talked about pushing the limits of possibility. I do believe it's important to do this, just not all at once. That's why psychologists who specialize in goal-setting theory advocate setting goals of moderate difficulty. Not so easy that we don't have to try, but not so difficult that we become discouraged and give up, end quote. Something that you've heard me talk about on this podcast before. Almost there. Uh, the second to last principle is the 22nd rule. Again, this episode is really long, and I have made an episode directly talking about this idea. Uh, episode 94, How Willpower Hurts Us. This chapter talks about how willpower is finite, talks about how the famous, talks about the famous cookie experiment it gives us the great quote, quote, common sense is not common action, end quote. 
He talks about how instead of relying on willpower, which we probably shouldn't rely on, and I talked about why in the episode 94, like I said. I also talked about this in episode 84, uh, how to set and achieve effective goals, as well as my YouTube video on my personal channel, How to Achieve Your Goals. Uh, There's a bunch of self-promotion if you really want to get into the 20-second rule, which, uh, as it says, if you add... 20 seconds to a task you don't need to do, you probably won't do it. For example, if you want to read more and watch less TV, you can place a book on your couch and then take the TV remote batteries and move them 20 seconds away from the remote. And then instead of sitting down and resisting the temptation of turning the TV on, you get, you will more or less have the choice of only picking up the book since the you know batteries are so far away. Again, the brain is built to be efficient. It's not going to go through the trouble of getting the batteries versus just picking up the book. At least it won't go through the, tr- through the trouble in that space if that space is 20 seconds. Um, the, char- the chapter also talks about uh, the path of least resistance. People don't do things that require extra effort. For example, the reason that streaming services offer a free trial but still ask you for payment info is because most revenue for streaming services come from people forgetting or being too lazy to unsubscribe from the service because it takes extra effort uh, and they can tell themselves, people that are subscribed, they can just tell themselves, quote, maybe I'll use it at some point, end quote. The book also says that, quote, it's not the sheer number and volume of distractions that gets us into trouble, it's the ease of access to them, end quote. Again, the path of least resistance. Make distractions harder to engage with, and the brain will naturally do what you know you should be doing. It also describes some great neurology behind habit formation. Neurons are what the brain uses to communicate within itself, and habits are habits because there's a strong path between neurons that are built after doing something over and over, very consistently. This is talked about and illustrated beautifully by the Kurtzgazat video, Change Your Life One Tiny Step at a Time. And then in terms of making your habits easier to build, Sean writes, quote, I like to refer to this as the 20 second rule because lowering the barrier to change by just 20 seconds was all it took for me to help form a new life habit. In truth, it often takes more than 20 seconds to make a difference. And sometimes it can take much less, but the strategy itself is universally applicable. Lower the activation energy you want to adopt and raise it for habits you want to avoid. The more we can lower or even eliminate the activation energy for our desired actions, the more we can enhance our ability to jumpstart positive change, end quote. Again, if you want to learn more about habit formation and willpower, listen to the episodes and watch the videos that I described above. The last principle, which we're also going to run through a bit here because my episode two weeks ago was on this exact topic, as was my YouTube video last week, social investment, human beings are social creatures, and that applies to the happiness advantage. Although, quote, when we encounter an unexpected challenge or threat, the only way to save ourselves is to hold on tight to the people around us and not let go, end quote, quote, it is easy to retreat into our own shells and at the moment that we need to be reaching out to others the most, end quote. The book talks about the importance of human interaction in the pursuit of positivity and the happiness advantage. This chapter says to talk to more people and to be more present when you're talking to someone. Don't look at your phone or another screen. Make eye contact because, quote, eye contact with someone, it actually sends a signal to the brain that triggers empathy and rapport. End quote, or rapport. 
uh, we talked about what the what loneliness does to you again two weeks ago. Uh, so what social investment does for you, as mentioned in the book, is higher productivity, work satisfaction, parentheses, assuming the social investment is at work, end parentheses, uh, better heart health, lower mortality. Overall, quote, we've all been there at some time or another. A daunting project gets dropped on our desk and we get consumed with worry that we'll fail to meet the demands. Is there enough time to get all get it all done? What will happen if we don't? As the deadline looms there and the pressure mounts, we start eating our lunch at our desks, working late, coming in on weekends. Soon we're, quote, focused like a laser, end quote, uh, or so we tell ourselves, which means no time with f- direct reports, no casual hallway chats, no time for non-essential calls with clients. For even our emails are more brisk and impersonal. As for time with family and friends, well, these things are the first to go when we're in crisis mode. But even though we're giving our work our undivided attention, our productivity is declining. And as the deadline nears, our goal seems to be slipping further and further out of reach. And so we hunker down, shut off our cell phones, retreat into the bunker of ourselves, and double lock the door. One of two things usually happens at this juncture. Either we falter and fail to finish the project, or we power through and get it done, then immediately get rewarded with another challenging project, though we now have zero oxygen left in our tank. Either way, we're not only miserable, dejected, and overwhelmed, but lost in a dead end, unable to perform and all alone. The most successful people take the exact opposite approach. Instead of turning inward, they actually hold higher to their social support. Instead of divesting, they invest. Not only are these people happier, but they are more productive, engaged, energetic, and resilient. They know that their social relations are the single greatest investment they can make in the happiness advantage, end quote. And those are all seven principles. And oh my, are we dip deep in. Uh, one more small part left and we're through. Almost there. Not just for you. The last short section is the ripple effect. This section talks about two paths that lead to the same destination. Those two paths are empathy and mirror neurons. Empathy is, you know what empathy is. (laughs) The ability to feel others' emotions. Mirror neurons are, quote, specialized brain cells that can actually sense and mimic the feelings, actions, and physical sensations of another person. Let's say a person is pricked by a needle. The neurons in the pain center of his or her brain will immediately light up, which should come as no surprise. But what is a surprise is that when the same person sees someone else receive a needle prick, the same set of neurons light up, just as though he himself had been pricked. In other words, he actually feels a hint of the pain of the needle prick, even though he himself hasn't been touched. If this sounds incredible, believe me when I tell you it has been replicated in countless other experiments involving sensations that range from pain to fear to happiness to disgust, end quote. This is why athletes watch training videos and play video games, just to get the idea and vision in their mind of the plays and the, and the moves. The book also goes on to describe how, quote, This phenomenon isn't exclusive to physical sensations or actions. Thanks to these same mirror neurons, our emotions too are enormously contagious. As we pass through the day, our brains are constantly processing 
feelings of the people around us. Taking note of the inflection in someone's voice, the look behind their eyes, the stoop of their shoulders. In fact, the amygdala can read and identify an emotion in another person's face within 33 milliseconds. And then just as quickly prime us to feel the same. Studies have shown that when three strangers met in a room or meet in a room, the most emotionally expressive person transmits his or her mood to the others within just two minutes. Daniel Goleman couldn't have said it better, quote, like secondhand smoke, the leakage of our emotions can make a bystander an innocent causal casualty of someone else's toxic state, end quote. This connection to other people is so powerful that, quote, one study found that when students with low grade point averages simply began rooming with higher scoring students, their grade point averages increased. These students, according to the researchers, quote, appeared to infect each other with good and bad study habits, such as that a roommate with a high grade point average would drag upward the GPA of his lower scoring roommate, end quote. The rest of the chapter harps on this and says that positive emotions are contagious. If you become positive, if you take advantage of the happiness advantage, then it will spread to the people around you, creating a better environment creating more positivity which relates back to some of the things that we talked about earlier in the book so it makes a positive feedback loop of well positivity uh, sean ends the book by fully answering the question for the chicken and the egg quote recent advances in positive psychology and neuroscience have taught us that success actually revolves around happiness not the other way around end quote at the beginning of the book sean mentioned something important quote the point is that just reading this book is not enough. It takes actual focus and effort to put these principles into practice. And only then will the returns start pouring in, end quote. He admits that simply reading his book, or in our case, listening to this episode isn't enough. He photos this at the end of the book, and or quote, This book is full of ways we can capitalize on the happiness advantage, but without actually putting those strategies into action, they remain useless, like a set of expensive tools that sit locked behind a glass case. The key to their use to permanent positive change is to create habits that automatically pay dividends without continued concerted effort or extensive reserves of willpower. The key to creating these habits is a ritual, repeated practice, until the actions become ingrained in your brain's neural chemistry. And the key to daily practice is to put your desired actions as close to the path of least resistance as humanly possible. Identify the activation energy, the time, the choices, the mental and physical effort they require, and then reduce it. If you cut the activation energy for the for those habits that lead to success, even by as little as 20 seconds at a time, it won't be long before you start reaping their benefits. The first step, metaphorically, and sometimes literally, is just to get your shoes on, end quote. You have to actually apply the things and apply yourself if you want to see a change in your life. I'm always a pretty big fan when authors say, quote, glad you bought the book, but it really doesn't mean much if you don't make it mean much, end quote, which I do on this podcast. And only difference is that tens of people listen to this and tens of thousands of people have read this book, which you should too. It's really good. Another thing that I want to mention that I didn't mention, I guess I forgot, is that Sean does mention at a point in the book, he's not trying to promote mindless optimism. He's not trying to promote that you ignore everything happening in the world and everything happening everywhere and just become like stupid optimistic. He's not saying that. He is just saying that hope 
Positivity leads to better outcomes and circumstances than negativity. Be open and fully understand the situation. Yes, that's a good thing to do. That's a great thing to do. However, interpretation should be positive. Your mentality should be optimistic. And that's going to lead to better outcomes and circumstances in your life. It will make more luck in your life. It will attract better things to your life. And so don't avoid everything. Don't deny the negativity. Accept it and be aware of it. Just be positive, even in the face of that negativity. With that, my opinion. This book is incredibly, incredibly valuable. It does not merely contain some golden nuggets, which is what you want to do when you can, when you read a book, you want one or two golden nuggets, and that makes it a pretty successful book. But this entire book is a gold mine. It's not just nuggets. It's just, it's raw gold the entire way through, which is a gold mine of information and value. This is a must read book. And although you may think I gave you a lot in this overview, there is so much more to this book and so much more written in this book. You can find some extra quotes in the Notion page at the top of the description. I'll also leave a link to the book so that you can buy it if you haven't already. Uh, it's not an affiliate link. Maybe it is if I if I decide to go through the effort of uh, making one. I don't know the process for that. Maybe I'll Google that before I upload this, but it might be an affiliate link. might not be. I'm not sure. Uh, the book, uh, I'll put it in the description if it is, just to, for the transparency. Um, this book covers a plethora of great science that is reinforced in many books. It is honestly a combination of the best parts of a number of great books, including The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F by Mark Manson, The Habit Cycle by Charles Duhigg, and The Rewired Brain by Dr. Ski Shelton. Uh, with that, no new music, season two of Assassination Classroom, new YouTube video out on some of the things that we talked about in this podcast episode. Please go watch. I will talk at you next week. Much love. Be happy. I have to edit this. Peace.